This is Horum with Horum's Quorum. My guest today is Ashwin Krishnan, who is the general counsel of the Miami Marlins. I did not know a lot about baseball or the insides of a baseball team until I talked to Ashwin and I learned a little bit. And I'm really fascinated in particular with how he forged his own path and bootstrapped his role. And I think it's incredibly inspiring and hopefully you'll learn something along the way as well. Here's Ashwin. Well, Ashwin, thanks for taking the time to talk. This is, uh, I'm looking forward to round two here. Yeah, no, happy to be here. Thanks for having me and uh, excited to do this. So we talked last time, and so I, I, I'm not exactly a sports maven. And you were telling me, though, that this is something you had your eye on, you know, since, you know, even entering law school. So just talk about that. Talk about the vision that you saw for yourself and, and the path you set yourself on. Yeah, yeah. So um, I grew up, um, you know, a huge sports fan, obviously, with my parents uh, being immigrants to this country, they, they weren't aware of, you know, US sports and everything else. And I think it was probably something I did to probably become more American, um, you know, follow US sports, have things to talk about with my, my friends. Um, and yeah, for me, it just became something I was really passionate about. I really enjoyed, uh, you know, watching baseball, football, basketball, uh, tennis, uh, those are the things I kind of grew up watching um, and playing. And, um, you know, over over time for me, it just kind of became something where I was, you know, spending so much of my time uh, following the news or just thinking about it or, or just otherwise spending time kind of consumed in the world of sports. And as I started to get, um, you know, into college and, and eventually law school, um, I kind of wanted to see if there was a way I could make this my career. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, I didn't have a great plan or anything like that, you know, going into college and, and, you know, I didn't really know much about what was kind of behind what we saw on TV. You know, you see athletes playing a, a sport, but you don't really know what goes on behind the scenes to put that all together and, and all the people involved. And so I didn't really have a sense that this was a career for me. I kind of said, okay, this is something where I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to enjoy watching it. I'm going to be passionate about it. But, you know, I'll, I'll probably just, you know, whatever my career is, you know, it's just this is just going to be a side kind of hobby or passion. Um, but when I was in college, I, I had an opportunity to intern for the NBA. Um, and that was really my first exposure uh, to understanding how big the business of sports was. Um, you know, all, all the, the people, all the, the money, all, everything that goes on behind the scenes, all the different companies that are involved um, to kind of put the product we see uh, on TV, you know, make that all happen. Um, and so that was really my first opportunity and window into that. At the time in college, I was kind of political science, um, you know, really focused on that and didn't really have a career plan in mind. I thought maybe law school, um, you know, I ended up eventually going to law school. And that's where I kind of, you know, really started to take shape for me of, okay, all these companies, all these sports leagues, they have teams, they have vendors that they work with. They, there's all these associated entities, whether it's TV networks, um, apparel companies, um, now, obviously, we have sports betting companies. There's so many kind of ancillary businesses associated with the sports that we that we come that we know and love. Um, and that's where I kind of realized, OK, you know, it, all these companies need lawyers um, like everything else in this world. There's there's lawyers everywhere. Um, and I kind of said, OK, I'm in law school now. Um, you know, maybe there's a chance I could work for one of these entities. Maybe there's a chance I could kind of intern, uh, build connections, and then eventually work my way into this field. And I would kind of marry, you know, two of my passions here, one, which is, you know, sports and everything else going on with, with also the practice of law and being a good lawyer. Um, and though that, that was kind of the first window I got into that. And I'm happy to kind of, I've talked for a while, I'm happy to go further into kind of the specifics of that in law school, if, if that's where you go next or, or anything you want to talk about there. Yeah, you know, what, what's interesting about that is I feel like there's any number of people who like, you know, like, you know, just really care about sports, but I think it's pretty unusual. It's pretty different that you actually decided to do something about that. Cause I mean, it, it, law is such a tracked path, right? And so, um, and particularly, I mean, you went to Harvard Law, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so like so many of your peers are, have really tracked paths. So it's really very interesting that you, it must've taken significant effort to do that because, you know, the law school I went to, I went to a, a regional school, the John Marshall Law School, and you, you don't have the same tracks you do at Harvard Law. And so I think it gave a lot of people a lot more creativity and entrepreneurial kind of approach to what they're doing. I knew a couple of people who was like, you know, I, I want to go be a sports agent or whatever. Um, but I think that's really interesting and unusual to do that. Do you feel that you're unusual in that regard? And so what is it that really, that I want to kind of understand, like, what made you say, I can actually go do that thing? 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question, and and you know, you, particularly true with, with with Harvard Law School, as you mentioned. Um, you know, I think a lot of my peers and classmates have gone on to careers at law firms, at, at financial services companies, clerkships, working in the government sector. All these paths are very um, you know well established at, at a law school like like Harvard, where um, again, there's a long legacy of people going into these very traditional fields. Um, and very noble work um, and, and very financially rewarding as well. So, you know, I think there's a reason why we see so many people uh, who come from, from, let's say, Harvard Law School go into these fields. Um, you know, for me, I, I kind of realized, you know, I, I think kind of early, probably in some point in my, my 1L year, that really wasn't for me. Um, you know, I knew as kind of a backup, I was going to go through OCI, go interview with all the law firms, do summer summer. Uh, uh, clerkships, do all that because I knew, you know, there was no guarantee that I was going to get a job in sports. But I think at the same time, I kind of told myself I was going to do everything I could to get into this field. Um, you know, I, I, I viewed my years, my three years in law school as really a great opportunity to reach out to people in the industry. I think all of us remember being in law school and not knowing exactly what we wanted to do. And so I kind of thought that was a great you know, platform for me to use to reach out to folks, whether they were academics, whether they were practitioners working at teams, leagues, agencies, whatever it may be. I mean, I, I went to so many conferences and panels and other things. You know, I, I joke with people that I probably majored in sports law. I know in law school, you, you don't really have a major. But for me, that's kind of what I felt it was like, because I said, you know, while I was taking my normal classes and everything I needed to do to graduate law school, I was also on the side kind of pursuing everything I could to kind of immerse myself in the sports law field. So, you know, for me, it was really something where I said I was going to knock down every door I could, write, write a letter to everybody, um, do everything I could to kind of break into this field, which I knew was so competitive and tough to get into, um, while also preserving my ability, you know, if it didn't work out, like it doesn't work out for many people, um, you know, go down the traditional path of going to a law firm, um, you know, and, and see where that leads me. And so how did you pick I, I'm sure you're, it sounds like you're interested in, you, you like a wide range of sports, you know, like, hey, I like them all about basketball or whatever. So, you know, what was going into you for the criteria for where you wanted to be? I recognize you, you maybe you're thinking, hey, just as long as I'm in the field, however that can happen. Or were you more targeted and say, hey, you know, I need to be in Major League Baseball. Like, what was that process like? Yeah. So I think knowing how few and far between these opportunities were, I tried to cast as wide a net as possible. I wasn't too picky about um, the sport or the location. I mean, for me, I kind of wanted to be a sport that I knew something about. So I focused on Major League Baseball, um, NFL, NBA, um, applied to things in tennis and soccer, um, hockey, sports that I was less familiar with. But I just kind of thought, again, having the experience of being in the field was just so valuable, you know, for down the road as well, that, you know, I thought any door I could kind of break into, I, I would take. Um, and um, yeah, so I cast a pretty wide net geographically, the same thing. You know, I, I grew up in San Diego, but was in school in Boston and kind of said, you know, after I graduate, you know, I'm open to moving wherever, um, knowing that, again, within within what, if you, if you kind of geographically restrict yourself, um, you know, there's only a handful of teams in each city. Um, it would make it much, much tougher for me. So I kind of was pretty open, um, on that front, but yeah, I, I tried to, again, cast the wide as wide net as possible. Um, knowing that, you know, for every 10 letters you write or 10 emails you send, you may get one back and, and, you know, may not lead to anything. So knowing that, you know, again, I, I couldn't be kind of deterred by, negative feedback or anything like that. I, I would just kind of have to keep pressing and, and seeing if there was an opportunity for me. And so how did you end up at the Marlins? Yeah. So it, uh, kind of going back to the first year of law school, I, I realized that, okay, sports law was something I wanted to do. Um, you know, I know how valuable internships are. Um, so I, I was able to secure an internship my second year of law school with the Boston Celtics. I was in Boston. The, the, the Celtics were there. Um, they, had a, they had an internship program that I think actually started a year or two before me, uh, where a Harvard law student would, would essentially spend the, the school year um, part time doing, doing legal work uh, for the team. And so I had kind of made myself known as someone who was very interested in sports law, very uh, passionate about the field, took the sports law class. Um, did well in the class and was able to interview for that position kind of through an, an established pipeline there. Um, but really, as that was winding down my second year, it was very clear that was a one year deal and, you know, I had to move on, uh, do something else my third year. I, I, I realized that, OK, this was a great opportunity for me to get into a legal organization, to get into um, a legal team, uh, a legal group at a sports team and really see what the day to day is like, because, again, 
from the outside, you know, I found this to be true of, of any organization I was, you know, looking at. I didn't really understand what they did on a day-to-day basis until I really had a chance to speak to people and really get in there and, and just understand kind of what the day-to-day was like. Um, so I realized how valuable this opportunity was. And so, again, I started this campaign of, okay, I got to find an internship just like this for my third year. Um, we were fortunate to host a big symposium um, my, at the end of my second year where we invited a lot of previous alumni, um, folks in the Boston area, others to kind of uh, just talk about sports life on campus. Um, and one of the folks there was the, the general counsel of the Marlins at the time. And they were going through this, this stadium process. Uh, and I was, I was kind of just there helping organize the conference. And I really kind of pressed, uh, pressed him and said, you know, I know you're, do, you're going through this, crazy process. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of legal work. Um, I'm here. I'm available. I can do free Lexus Westlaw research. I can look at a contract. I can, you know, whatever you need, I'm around and available. Um, It doesn't have to be a formal structured program, but I just want that experience and I want to get a chance to um, further build my credentials in the sports law field. And he was actually very receptive to that. In fact, you know, that weekend of the conference, he actually gave me an assignment and he said, oh, great. Like you, you want to do this? okay, here you go, research this. And I said, wow, okay, he's really giving me a tryout here. Um, and like anything else, you know, you, you, you get that opportunity, you have to take advantage of it. So I spent, you know, pretty much all weekend when I wasn't at the conference working on this, um, putting a memo together um, and, and sent that to him. And I guess, you know, he was, he was pleased with it and continued giving me assignments throughout that, um, throughout that summer. Um, and then really towards the end of the summer, I, I, I went to him and said, look, uh, this has been great. I really enjoy this. Is there a chance we could formalize this into the internship to an internship, like a, a full year internship with the Marlins? Obviously I'm in Boston, you're in Miami. Um, we can work remotely. I, now we all know what working remotely is, but back then it was kind of yeah. a little bit more of a, how's this going to work? I, I'll call you, I'll give you, email you assignments. Is this really going to be something that's going to work for us? And again, he was open to doing it and um, worked out great. Uh, I got a chance to fly down to Miami a couple of times, meet some people, present some of my work. So, um, you know, it worked out really well. And, and he made it very clear, just like, just like with the Celtics, he said, this is not going to be a full-time job. You know, this is a, this is a one-year internship. Um, that's what it is. You know, continue doing everything you're doing with interviewing for law firms and all that. And I actually, you know, I, I took him at his word and I said, okay, yeah, you know, obviously I'd love to come, but if that's what you're telling me, I'm going to go interview. I accepted a job at a law firm in LA, moved out to LA, um, studying for the California bar, um, prepared to go. And about five weeks into that summer, um, he called me and said, you know what, there's a lot of legal work going on. We're building this new ballpark. Um, you know, I'm, he was a one man show at the time. He said, you know, I could really use some help. Um, you, you got, you were, you were, you know, you were good. Um, you know, are you available? Are you interested? Would you move out here? I had never been to Miami at that point, other than the, the visits I had done during that year. And would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. You know, let's go sign me up. And he's, you know, he kind of said, um, do you want to hear the title? Do you want to hear the, the salary? Do you want to hear that? I was like, you can tell me all that. It's not going to change my answer, but, um, but yeah, so that was kind of that, that, so that happened very quickly. I switched over to the Florida bar, um, took the Florida bar in September and then, you know, was, was, uh, uh, started here in September of 2010. Um, and so, yeah, I've been here ever since, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a great experience and I'm sure we can get into that, but, um, but, but yeah, that's kind of what led me to the Marlins in Miami. And yeah, it's, uh, everybody has a very unique story of how they got into their sports team just from talking to other folks in similar situations. Everybody's story, everybody's path is unique. As you hit on earlier, there's not one path. There's not a track for this type of work. Um, so, you know, it's one of those industries that really depends on um, the connections you make, the people you get to interact with, and um, what you ultimately do with some of those opportunities. So, I'll stop there. Again, I went on way too long. <laughs> no, that, that's all uh, really good stuff. And so with, I guess here, I'll pick up something that's kind of a little bit of a tangent from where we've been going so far. So talking to you, so, you know, it sounds like it's a small world, you know, people that are general counsels for major sports franchises. And I'm curious if you see any common threads in the stories that led people to, you know, like how they got their jobs or what is there some common DNA, you know, between what, what is there something that sets you all apart? They're like, Hey, you know what? We're just built a little bit different. This is, we think a little bit different. We act a little different. Like, you know, cause like, you know, tech in-house counsel or a certain way, pharma in-house counsel or a certain way, like what's, what's unique about, you know, the, the crew of people that you've gotten to know. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, I'm trying not to paint with too broad of a brush here. I think there's a lot of different personalities and a lot of different styles, just, you know, different age groups, different backgrounds. Um, when I just look at, let's say, my Major League Baseball group, for example, of, of Club Council. Um, so there's all sorts of different personalities and styles. When I try to think of common threads, I think it's just being very versatile. And I know that's kind of a cliche. And, and there's many other fields that have folks that are that are versatile in-house counsel. But but I think for us, I mean, I certainly see it every day. And it's just, uh, you know, I think there's a premium on being very versatile and very flexible and able to kind of quickly uh, put on a lot of different hats. Um, we, we deal with, um, you know, so many different departments and so many different types of issues that pop up every day. There's not really, a, you know, when people ask me, what's your typical day like there, the, the answer is there is no typical day. I, you know, I wake, I certainly have, you know, certain projects and things that are on my mind, but every day it's kind of, you know, whatever calls or emails I get that I need to quickly focus my attention to. And usually it's something that needs to be dealt with right away. So whether it's a, you know, an immigration issue, a visa issue, or, um, you know, a player issue or, uh, something going on with the sponsor or something going on operationally at the ballpark, um, you know, you just kind of have to quickly pivot and, and be able to, um, I guess, make decisions too. That's another thing. I think, you know, a lot of lawyers sometimes get in the habit of writing memos, giving opinions and, and, you know, that's all great. But at the end of the day, our folks look to us to actually help them make a decision right then and there. So we can't kind of hide behind, you know, couched legal language of it depends, or, you know, maybe you could do this, but there's a risk of this, you kind of ultimately have to drive to a conclusion. So I think a lot of us are used to that, where, you know, you put on the pressure of actually having to make a decision, not just being the, the legal advisor, but being a decision maker uh, as part of the business team. So yeah, and so do you think about, I guess, Another way, another thing I'm interested in is like, so what, what's like, what do you think about the industry or in, it, it is, is sports, do you think of it as entertainment? Like, you know, like I'm, I'm starting to appreciate, you know, the, the possibilities that, you know, um, different fields that you may not think of competing, maybe competing. Cause like, say it, it's the evening, it's the end of the day and you've got some time to unwind, what do you do? Do you pull up a game or do you pull up TikTok? I mean, so like, how are you starting to think about, you know, what your niche is and how does it affect how you make the decisions you're describing and how you lawyer? That's, no, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I think what's, I don't even know what time frame. maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, people looked at their competition as other sports teams. They say, okay, they can either go to a Marlins game or a Dolphins game or a Heat game. Um, but, you know, actually, when you think about it, it's like those seasons are almost offset in a way where it's, they're not really your competition. What you said is exactly right. We're competing for someone's discretionary dollar, you know, money that they don't need for, you know, vital need, but they, they say, okay, I have some choice of entertainment. I can do something with this dollar. I can watch a Netflix uh, I can I can pay for a Netflix subscription and watch a movie. I can go to a Marlins game. I can you know go to the go to the beach and spend money there. Whatever it is, um, that's what we're competing for. And I think that's the framework in which we look at it. Is that we have to be entertaining as a product. When someone comes to the ballpark, they have to be entertained. You know, obviously the game. We you know baseball is in a very unique situation because there's so much history and tradition. And there's a lot of folks that are really cling to that and really, um, you know, want to preserve that for good reason. I mean, there's just a long history and, and, and there's, uh, you know, a lot of traditions in the game, but you know, that's the tension we deal with every day is, but you know, the, we say, but, but look at our fans. If our fans are, are, have an attention, a short attention span, if we're in this Instagram, TikTok generation where folks are, you know, looking for the latest stimulus every, every, uh, every second, um, you know, we need to be entertaining as a product. So maybe we can't change the game on the field, but then every Everything else going on in the ballpark needs to be something that's catchy and that keeps people entertained, keeps people wanting to be there, wanting to, you know, enjoy the experience, wanting to come back, um, thinking that they got entertained for three hours and it was good value for their money. So that absolutely drives our decisions every day as we think about, you know, what what do we have control over, knowing that maybe, you know, the, the bigger, the game itself may not evolve as fast as we would like, but, you know, there are things we can do in terms of an entertainment product to to make it more compelling. And are there anything, you know, as far as, you know, uh, where the game is heading? Because I imagine, you know, because now we've got augmented reality and virtual reality. And now, you know, so many people are commenting on like how important, um, you know, making events and spaces Instagram friendly are. You know, how is that affecting the business and in, in, in the direction you see it going? Yeah, no, that's that's, uh, you know, same vein of. Um, what, if, if this is how people are consuming the game, so, you know, leave aside 
like, okay, yes, we set up, you know, Instagram friendly backgrounds and booths and photo opportunities for people who come to the ballpark. But, you know, what we're seeing now is people are actually consuming the game itself uh, from Twitter and from Instagram. People are consuming the game on their phones, um, which is just a whole new level of, 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 of way of, of taking in a game. And people, we're used to people either watching it at the ballpark live or watching it, you know, on their TV or radio. And that was kind of it. That was the universe of how people would consume a game, maybe look at the box scores online or something. But now we've changed that with, you know, the way that people watch so much, do so much from their phones. Um, you know, that, that feeds into how quickly we need to have highlights available on Twitter, on Instagram, on social media of how, of how we, of how we market the game um, and how we make it exciting ultimately, because again, like with everything else, people have a choice of what they're looking at on their phone. We want them to be consuming for us. We want them to be consuming Marlins baseball as a league. We want them to be consuming baseball in some sense. So it's, it's about trying to find, as you kind of put it, Instagram moments or Instagram friendly um, experiences for people to have when watching a baseball game. So that, that ties into, you know, ties into where we see the game going. There, there is augmented reality. There is sports betting coming, um, you know, things that, that, allow more interactivity, I think are the future of this game, because that's what people want. They want to be engaged and they want, they want to have some sort of, you know, connection to what's going on. It's very tough. I mean, I'm a huge baseball fan, work for a baseball team. I acknowledge it's tough to sit in one seat for three hours and watch a game. That's just not where we, that's just not where we are as a, as a society. Um, you know, even the people that come to the ballpark, we, we know they want to walk around. They want to see other things. They want to, you know, maybe grab a beer at a, at a themed bar, then go watch half the game from somewhere else. And so we know that's our audience. So we, we have to cater to that. Yeah, it's funny because you mentioned Netflix earlier. And I remember when I first got Netflix in like 2005 or six, like, you know, back then, like you didn't have any social media competing for your attention or anything like that. So I could sit and watch a whole movie and that, but that's just like, you know, like, yeah, you know, I'd watch these like art house kind of films for two hours, whatever. And it was amazing because you can get them on Netflix, couldn't get them anywhere else. But now, yeah, attention span is, is such a challenge. Now, it's interesting because you mentioned the sports betting coming. And, and this is where I'm kind of curious is what do you see as what are the legal barriers that you're running up against to take the sports team, you know, to take your franchise to the next level? Or, you know, what are the interesting, you know, the barriers one way, one aspect, but then maybe another aspect is what are the frontiers you see the opportunities for? Like, hey, you know, um, because I just understand in this legal landscape, that means there's fertile terrain over here. And that's that's an edge that I have over someone else. Are those ways that you're thinking about, you know, guiding the company forward? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty in this area first. And, and the part of the challenge is that it varies state by state. Um, and, and right now, uh, you know, after the, the big Supreme Court decision a couple of years ago, we've got we've got a lot of um, different states doing different things in terms of the sports gambling world. And we've got a unique set of challenges in Florida, um, both with our state legislature and, and everything they're doing. Plus, we've got the um, you know, we've got we've got the, the Indian tribes here as well. They, they, they have a big foothold here in, in gambling. And so we've got a, a kind of navigate that we've got disney as well they're a big player in in the space in the sense that they have you know a lot of dollars vested in people going to theme parks and you know casino gambling may not be their their um ideal you know thing to have as a competition for that so we've got a few different kind of big players here that that you know we've got to navigate and work through um there's a variety of different ways in which sports betting can kind of come through so there's the brick and mortar approach you know like in one dimension we could have a you know have a physical location where we could literally have a sports book on our ballpark premises where fans can you know bet before the game during the game after the game that's one kind of avenue there's mobile betting where you could have your fans you know bet wherever they are whether they're watching it on tv or whether they're watching it you know at the ballpark or or some other you know some other state or country um and then of course there's you know there's there's all sorts of different permutations of of that, of when, when you allow betting, what you allow people to bet on, you know, our concerns obviously, and this is being done at a league wide level, but our concerns are obviously the integrity of the game. Number one, never want to get in a situation where people doubt the outcome of a game or think there's some sort of, um, you know, point shaving or whatever it may be going on with, with, with respect to the integrity of the game. But then once you get beyond that, it's kind of also ensuring a fair, um, you know, a, a fair playing field for people that are, because a lot of our fans, a lot of our consumers will be participating in this and we would never want them to kind of, you know, have a bad experience. I know, I know with, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel, they had certain experiences where there were, you know, professional folks getting in there or algorithms being used, that kind of stuff. So there's a lot to be worked out of, in, worked out in terms of like, how do we, how do we make this a fair experience? How do we make this a, 
a pleasant experience for the consumer. Um, and then, you know, also tying into all the, the other elements I mentioned, dealing with all the other kind of big players in Florida for us. But, you know, even if, if and there is talk of being, you know, of federal legislation in this area as well. So that's something we have to monitor in terms of what may come down as a federal framework of how this all works. Um, so it's just kind of being mindful of a variety of different um, constituents and concerns and ultimately trying to get to, a, to an area where I think as a league, we've acknowledged this is coming. Um, you know, Adam Silver was one of the first, uh, the NBA commissioner was one of the first, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. He was one of the first kind of sports figures to kind of acknowledge that, hey, sports betting is coming, guys. We, we need to get around it. We can't just, for, for the longest time, I think all the leagues had kind of resisted it and said, no, 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 this is going to harm the game. It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. We can't have this. It'll ruin everything. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, everything we've just talked about, where society is, what people's attention span is, how we keep people interested in consuming our products. Um, we acknowledge now that sports betting is something that will help drive interest in the game. We just have to do it in the right way. And so, I mean, I guess betting is something that was, you know, I was thinking about the ways you compete or complement with, say, Disney. So if somebody flies out to Florida, then, you know, the fact that there's both the Marlins go see and Disney kind of like makes Florida as a whole more of a destination. But of course, the two of you are also competing for how much time you get. So like, what are, can you talk about the ways you complement each, like, you know, what are the ways, let's say the Marlins complement the heat um, you know, and, or what are the ways you compete? And you kind of talked about that, you know, in some ways you don't compete. Uh, and then likewise, to expand the pool to say like, you know, Disney or, or any of the gambling, I guess, like, how do you think about that map where you're, you're both competing, but you also have common interests as well? Yeah. So let me start with the, the sports teams. I can, that, that I'll start there and then go broader. So with, you know, the heat and the dolphins and the Panthers here, um, you know, we certainly compete for attention. You know, at the end of the day, fans are, you know, have a limited amount of mind space or, you know, whatever you want to call it, loyalty space, you know, who they follow, who they care about. And that's something we compete for. Um, you know, if you're caring more about basketball and the heat, then you're probably going to care less, a little bit less about baseball and the Marlins. So there's something there where we kind of compete for that. Um, merchandise kind of ties into that. You know, if you're more loyal to the Heat and the Dolphins, you're probably going to buy more of their merchandise, maybe buy more tickets to them than if you're going to kind of support the Marlins. But, um, you know, I think in, in, as I touched on earlier, there's there's an element of also saying, you know, we're, we as sports teams are competing against other forms of entertainment. So if we can capture someone as a sports fan, someone who enjoys watching live performances of, of athletic events, that's great. Let's keep them there versus, you know, looking at other things, whether they go to the theater, whether they go watch a movie, whatever it is. Um, we'd rather have them be a sports fan altogether, all things considered. But then once we get them to that sports fan world, then we say, OK, how do we how do we get the Marlins on, on their minds? Um, and then we have plenty of folks that, that are sports fans and that say, OK, baseball season is April through October. OK, I'm a Marlins fan then football, you know, September through January and then, and then basketball November through uh, June. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of segment out my, my sports fandom across, you know, when the teams are in season, which is fine. I mean, I think that's, that's kind of the normal approach we see for, for avid sports fan in Miami. They, they support their local teams and they, they kind of go with season by season. So um, that's, that's kind of the sports element of it. I think when you get to the, the, the Disney element or you get to the broader, industry element, you're right. There, there is a complementary framework there of, Hey, let's get tourists to Florida. There's let's let, you know, let's show them all we have to offer. We have great beaches. We have, you know, casinos here we have um, great hotels. We have great restaurants, put everything out there with great theme parks, put, put everything out there and say, you know, this, these are all the things we have to offer. This is why Florida should be a great destination for tourists who are vacationing for conferences businesses, you know, everything, just, just bring more business to Florida. But I, but I think the challenge there is then you get into what we're seeing right now with, with, with Disney and others where it's, you know, okay, great. If you're going to bring gambling here, if you're going to bring casinos here that are going to be everywhere, they're going to take away from our entertainment dollars. And, and sometimes it even goes against their core kind of values. Disney's very family friendly, very, um, you know, that, that's kind of the, good, the idea of a casino to them may not be as palatable. Um, you know, maybe down the line, they will have a casino on the Disney campus and say, you know, we, we made this work. But, you know, I think initially to them, it kind of strikes them as, oh, this is not family friendly when you think of the degenerate gambler or what you see in a casino and all that. So that may, that may hurt their image. 
So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a challenge that we just have to continue to work on and figure out those synergies because obviously if we're all on the same side, it makes it a lot easier. Um, and we know that we have, you know, we, we have enough opponents uh, on, you know, whether it's the Indian tribes or the, the, the legislators who don't believe in gambling and, and all of that. Um, we've got enough opponents that, that, you know, don't want to expand kind of this area. So we, we have to work together with the ones that, that are willing to at least consider it. You know, I'm also thinking about the ways that your business is different from other businesses and that there's such an element of community, you know, just like, you know, plenty of other companies, maybe they sponsor a little league or something like that, but they're just not as inherently tied to a community. So, you know, like, how does that affect how you lawyer? I mean, like, to what extent do you ever have to find yourself advocating for the public interest or something like that, something that feels like that? Like, can you talk a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's a that's that's a very unique element of kind of sports teams interaction with their communities because we are very by nature we're very small entities. I mean, we're we're in the hundreds of people. We have about two hundred front office staff and two hundred baseball staff. So by size, we're we're certainly not one of the bigger companies here in Miami or in the state of Florida. But our 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 profile is a lot bigger. So we're a private company, but very public impact or public influence. Um, people become fans of the team and they, they, they treat you and we, we want this. We want to be the community's team. Um, and, and that manifests itself in a few different ways. Number one is our community, like our community outreach and our foundation efforts. You know, for us, it's very, very important that we're viewed as the community team and that we are a part of this community and are a good corporate citizen. So for us, it's when COVID hits, it's providing masks, it's providing tests, it's doing food distributions, it's being everywhere in the community that we can to, to offer help and support. Um, you know, I know many private companies do offer do offer various things, but for us, it's, you know, it's almost an obligation where we, where we're expected to do something and we're happy to do it. And we, we don't even want to see it. Out. We, we, we um, you know, welcome that obligation. We look at it as, yes, we are expected to do something because we are part of this community. We are one of the pillars of this community and you should expect to see the Marlins everywhere. You should expect the Marlins out in the community um, doing, doing good things. And so that, that's kind of, that's the biggest way I would say we've had an impact in that sense. Um, but also just in our kind of PR approach to everything, you know, I think we know when we speak, we have a, you know, we have an important voice. Um, so when, you know, the social justice um, events were happening this summer and have continued into the, the fall and the winter here, um, we, we, we made sure we had a voice in that conversation. Um, you know, we had the, the first African-American CEO of an MLB team in Derek Jeter. Um, so it was obviously very important to him, uh, everything that was going on. And, you know, we put up a big Black Lives Matter banner in center field. Uh, we've been very involved in social justice efforts. And, um, you know, it's just kind of our, we, we view it as, you know, we're being a good corporate citizen, but also, as I said, earlier, we want it to be expected of us. We welcome that obligation um, because we, we want to be seen as a pillar of this, of this community. Um, and that just, you know, goes beyond kind of, um, you know, just, just donating money or, or something like that. You know, I think it's, it's kind of infected, it's, it's, it's infected how we operate as a business. And I think more directly what you were asking was about how it's like my work as a lawyer. Um, you know, I have to have that mindset every deal we do. Um, you know, I, it, it, it affects, Every deal I do with our foundation, every deal I do with the sponsor, every deal I do with the vendor, knowing again, what is going to be the, the public impact of this deal? What is going to be the, the perception of this deal? How is this going to affect the community? How is this going to affect our standing in the community? Knowing that, you know, we're viewed as a, as a certain type of corporate citizen that we need to be, um, you know, we need to, we need to always make sure we're mindful of how we're perceived in this community um, because that's so important to us. Now, as someone, you know, you yourself are South Asian. So like, what do you feel like that you bring for a difference in perspective to the role and into like, you know, like, what do you think, you know, sports teams, what ways are sports teams better off by having perspectives of someone like yourself with your unique experiences? You know, what, what changes when, when we add you to the conversation? Yeah. Um, so uh, there are very few South Asians in sports. Um, you know, I think it's, fairly well known. Um, and it's something that, uh, you know, I know there's various groups that are trying to create more interest and opportunities for, for South Asians. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly supportive of all that. I think knowing our group in particular, we are one of the most diverse front offices in baseball, um, both at the executive level and throughout the organization. You know, I think it's a function of where we are. Miami is a very diverse city. Um, but even within all of that, um, there, uh, going back to the fact that there are very few South Asians in sports, I, I you know, I, 
I look at myself and I look at our executive team. I look at when we get together with other MLB clubs or get together at other, you know, South Florida forums. I, I tend to be the only South Asian, if not one or one other, you know, there's very few of us in, in this world and um, in this world of sports and in South Florida generally. So, um, you know, I think I bring a very unique perspective, um, you know, really representing kind of um, the, sto- the immigrant story of Asian Americans, which is different than the immigrant story of, um, of, of Latin Americans who, who, who are very predominant here in Miami. Um, and I think just kind of the experiences that we have, you know, I think uh, our voice is not, and we've seen this on the political stage too, and, um, you know, our voice is not always heard as, as loud as it should be. Uh, you know, we, we have a, a very important story to tell. Um, you know, we, we, we've been perceived sometimes as the model minority and, and those types of things. And I think we have a, a lot to offer in terms of our experiences and our um, story as a, as a collective group, as a collective immigrant group that sometimes isn't heard as much. And so I, you know, I'm very proud to be part of an office that hired the first female GM, Kim Ng, who's also Asian American. Um, and, and, you know, collectively, I think we've already kind of seen the outpouring of support that, that she's received, um, both from, you know, folks that are so excited for her to be the first female in this position, but also folks that are excited to see the first Asian American in this position. So, um, it's, it's diversity is critical to, to what we do to have a variety of viewpoints, both backgrounds, experiences, and, and everything else that people bring with their, with, when they join a, a, a room. So, you know, for us, it's, it's really important that we continue to find new and diverse voices, um, to add to the organization. And, uh, just switching gears a little bit, you know, I, you mentioned Derek Jeter coming in as CEO and that came over with new management. And I remember you commenting on the, uh, I'd asked you before, what was the project you're most proud of? And in you point to the transition that you handled. Can you talk a little about that? Because I think that's kind of fascinating. I don't know so many people that, are, that have been in a role like that. Yeah, that was a pretty crazy time. So for, for my first seven years here, um, you know, I was part of, I was member of the legal team and then rose to the, 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 the head of the legal team um, and, and uh, worked for one ownership group, which then decided to sell the team in, uh, you know, approximately January, February of 2017, ultimately closed in October of 2017. Um, and so it was working hand in hand with our ownership group as we prepared to sell the team, you know, had various folks that were interested in acquiring the team, had all sorts of exchanges with each of the ownership, uh, prospective ownership groups, documents, questions, you know, all, all what you'd expect when someone is making a significant purchase of this, of this magnitude. Um, and, um, you know, the, the craziest part for me was, you know, until the day of the, the, the transaction, you know, until the minute the transaction closed, I was working on one side of the deal. Um, and then the minute that transaction closed, I literally switched to the other side of the deal. So I became our, our, the buyer's lawyer, the buyer's uh, general counsel. Um, and so that, you know, that became a very interesting period of time where I kind of had to, you know, feel that out and say, okay, you know, these folks don't know me uh, other than being the lawyer for the other side. Um, you know, do they trust me? Are they going to, how, how is this going to work? Because obviously there were numerous items that needed to be closed kind of post closing. There were numerous items that needed to be sorted out um, with the old ownership group. And obviously, you know, I think naturally for them, they had to wonder, okay, where's this guy's allegiance? What, 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 you know, how can we trust him? All of that. But, you know, I worked really hard to kind of walk them through everything I was doing, have them understand why I was doing it and, and really show that, you know, my loyalty was to the organization. And, and that's ultimately, you know, why, why I wanted to continue working um, for the organization and be a part of the new ownership group. And, you know, I think over the last it's just been just over three years now, you know, I've done everything I could to kind of show them that, you know, that's where my loyalty lies and that I want to continue to be part of this, this, this new group because of everything they're, they're, they're planning on accomplishing and I'm excited to be a part of and, um, you know, all the, the new, the new um, kind of frontiers they're exploring. All right. So I, I mean, I, I mentioned this before, but, you know, I, I do, I am just so fast with how you talk is that it is just so, different from other lawyers, you know, this is not, you know, like talking to you is just like talking to, I could be talking to anyone at the Marlins right now. It doesn't feel like I'm talking to the general counsel. So, you I mean, so that's, you know, something I'm just going to observe, but the other thing is that I'm, I've got to be, I'm thinking right now is that you have to have way, way more interesting stories than, you know, many other lawyers I could talk to. So like, what is, what comes to mind or like, is there like a go-to story? Like if someone says like, Oh, like what's the craziest story you have with the Marlins? Like, do you have a story like that or can you just come up with one right now? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's uh it's, you know, the, the, the craziest story, the one that I always default to is unfortunately a sad one. It's um it's when Jose Fernandez, um, our star pitcher, um, 
uh, died uh, September 25th, 2016. Um, you know, that's one of those, you remember exactly where you were, what you were doing when you got that call. And, and it was, you know, it was just a, a crazy, crazy circumstance. Um, you know, he, he was in a tragic boat accident here in, in Miami Beach. Um, and um, it was just one of those things. He was such a he was such a charismatic individual. He, he, he really was our, the face of our franchise. Um, you know, I tried to think of comparisons of, of you know, who, who he kind of like how to compare because a lot of folks in other cities didn't know him as well or didn't really appreciate what he meant to this community. Um, and he, um, you know, the, the closest thing I could think of was like LeBron in Cleveland. Like that's the level of, you know, like this, this was the home. He, he had a, you know, a very typical immigrant story of, of coming from Cuba to, to Miami. Um, his story was even crazier in the sense that, you know, he made three attempts to come here uh, on this attempt. Someone fell overboard. He jumped overboard and saved that person. It turned out to be his mother. Um, you know, it was just like this, this hero story. I mean, he was hero worshiped here and then he played the game with such, love and passion and joy. And, and, you know, I think so many kids here just kind of looked at him and said, that's going to be me. Like, that's who I want to be. Um, and, and, you know, his life was cut short. Um, you know, he, he, you know, one day out on a boat and, um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately was passed away from that, from that accident. And, you know, that, that left all of us reeling, I mean, reeling, uh, and, and my job as a lawyer became immediately to, okay, you know, let's sort out all the, 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 the details of what happened contractually. What do we need to do? Um, logistically, what do we need to do? Um, there were just kind of a, you know, a million things to sort out. And, and, you know, I, I don't think we touched this yet, but just as a lawyer, you get involved in so many different aspects of running a, a sports team. Um, you really touch every department. So, you know, from that, on that day, for example, and, and the, the days following that, it was, you know, dealing with our, dealing with our president, dealing with our owner, dealing with our GM, dealing with our public affairs people, dealing with our communications people, um, our finance people, because there were details to be sorted out. You know, what happens to his contract? What happens? We, we set up a trust fund for um, his, his daughter. He had an infant daughter at the time. Um, uh, and and um, it was just, um, you know, just a very, very chaotic, but, um, you know, ultimately, um, you know, very, uh, I felt rewarded as a lawyer because I was able to help sort through a lot of logistics in a period of crisis. But, um, but, but yeah, just a crazy, crazy circumstance where you never expect that call. And, um, you know, I, it was, it was, a it was a very, um, you know, just a very difficult period, but one that, you know, I, again, felt as a lawyer, I was able to kind of, you know, separate some of the emotion from it and say, okay, let's focus, you know, this is what we need to get done. Here's what needs to happen on the baseball side. We need to call up this player to take his place. We're going to postpone the game. What happens there? You know, what do we need to do with all our sponsors, season ticket holders? Okay, then, you know, what, what do we need to do with his family? What do we need, like, you know, all the different pieces that are affected by, by one player's kind of passing. Um, kind of navigating that was just, um, you know, it was, a, it was a very daunting and challenging task, but one I think lawyers are well-suited to do because we're used to multitasking, we're used to prioritizing and kind of seeing clearly through uh, a situation that can be, you know, very murky uh, initially. So, um, yeah, again, I apologize. Not a, not a, not a great story, but, uh, but one that always is the one that I, you know, tell when, when people ask me, what's the craziest thing you've been a part of, because that was just, you know, that period of time, I remember it so vividly of just, you know, not sleeping for that many days because there was just so many pieces to sort out. You know, when you're talking just now and describing all the operational components that you were kind of sorting through, it makes me wonder, you know, do you see yourself as moving into a pure operator role at some point? Um, you know, I've thought about that at times. You know, there's certainly like when you look at the, the general counsel role, we touch so many different aspects of the operation from the baseball side, um, player contracts, player issues, uh, facilities, operations, finance, IT, HR, um, our sponsorship and sales groups, just every group uh, across the organization that I think, you know, the the more um, you know, the more natural fit or progression I see for myself. And again, this is kind of just, you know, if things uh, go in that direction, would be more moving into kind of a COO type role or a president role, something like that in the future, where you more formally kind of oversee those areas um, in, in terms of just kind of growing my um, skill set and expertise in managing all those issues. I, I tend to find myself in the middle of a lot of those issues, just from the legal side, but, you know, I think that would be the next progression would be to ultimately manage and oversee those areas um, with the knowledge that I've kind of gained as a, as a part of that working group. So you know, the vibe I'm getting from you is that you're pretty, you know, settled in Miami now. So let's talk Miami. So I actually, I worked on a field uh, on a campaign as a, as a field organizer 
a long time ago and I was based in Fort Lauderdale. So I, I have some exposure to Miami. Um, and yeah, I've visited Miami a number of times with the years, definitely enjoy myself right now. It's kind of blowing up. I mean, I'm sure you're seeing a lot of people who are talking about moving there mm-hmm. and you've been there for a number of years now. So talk about, you know, like how has Miami changed in the past 10 years? You know, are people for real with, you know, coming to Miami and sticking there? Or is this, are they going to just, you know, it's going to hit July. Are they going to feel that humidity and say, you know what, I'm, I'm tapping out. Not that too many people spend a lot of time with the humidity. You're, you got all this great air conditioning, but let's talk yeah. about it. What's, uh, yeah, sure, sure. So yeah, no, I think, um, you know, I, I, I've seen it, I've been here 10 years going on year 11 now, and I've seen it grown tremendously. I mean, I remember when I first moved here, you know, parts of the, of the town like Brickell and Wynwood Midtown were barely in their infancy. I mean, those areas had just been developed and were kind of in their growth stages, I would say. And, and the scary part to say now is they're still growing. Um, that's the crazy part to me is that I go to Brickell now and I look back like 10 years ago, I would say more than half of those buildings weren't even there. And now it almost reminds me of New York when I walk around because there's so many tall high rises and there's, you know, every convenience you can imagine, uh, these brand new buildings, fully, you know, full service apartment buildings, full service, uh, you know, everything, um, office buildings. Um, and and I, I think there's just been a tremendous amount of growth here. I, I'll tell you this. I mean, when I first got here, September 2010, I actually wondered, I, I, you know, a lot of my classmates obviously uh, stayed in the Northeast. They, they stayed in Boston, went to New York, went to Washington, D.C. You know, I had a handful of people that went to San Francisco, L.A. And for the Midwest folks, typically Chicago. But I always wondered, I was like, why don't more people know about Miami? I mean, this is kind of crazy. This is great weather down here, you know, nine months of the year, um, you know. Cost of living was fairly low. I mean, I, you know, compared my apartment rent then to like what, what folks were paying elsewhere. And I was like, wow, I'm, you know, I live on like pretty much on the water, full service building, like great location. How am I paying like half of what someone's paying in New York for a shoebox or San Francisco or wherever it may be? So I kind of looked at it and said, I don't know. Is there like some kind of secret? Like what's going on here? Why, why is, why, why did nobody talk about Miami when we were talking about recruiting and like, you know, where people were going after law school? Um, and I still, to some extent, feel that way. I still feel like, okay, you know, I don't think enough people are talking about this. I get it. You know, there's a lot of tradition and history and people go to these law firms and banks and wherever, you know, because where they are. Um, and, and there's a lot happening, obviously, in those cities. But I kind of feel like Miami is a little undervalued in that sense. I'm like, you know, there's great weather here, particularly in a year like this, where everyone's working from home and all that. It's like, there's great weather here, great lifestyle here. Why don't more people talk about or know about this? Um, and, and obviously no state income tax, another, another plug there for Miami, but, um, but I, you know, I, I still feel that to some extent, obviously, you know, I think there's, there's elements of it. There isn't, you know, there aren't a lot of big law firms here. There aren't a lot of big banks here. You know, I think that's, they're trying to, I think that's trying to you know change. I saw something about Blackstone coming here, uh, opening up an office. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I think there might be, um, you know, some change, obviously Francis Suarez, our mayor, um, tweeted quite a bit about, you know, this being the next hub of tech and, you know, people going from California and Texas, maybe this is somewhere else they want to look. Um, you know, I know that narrative has been pushed for, you know, a couple of years now. And, uh, you know, I'm not super familiar with kind of the tech community here, but I know it's growing. I know there's a, there's, there's certainly incubators and, you know, de- some development in that front. Hard for me to say, you know, if that's going to catch on, it's going to become, let's say the next SF or the next Austin. Um, but I do see the, the, the appeal for it on a, on a very base level of, you know, there, there, there's very good weather here. There's, Cost of living doesn't seem that high compared to some of these other cities. Um, why not? You know, you're, you're, you're living, you're close to water. You're able to travel to Latin America, Europe. Um, it's convenient for that. It's um, and, and you can, you know, there's so many different places to live here. So that's the other thing. People think of Miami. They think, oh, OK, South Beach, you know, party, this and that. Um, there's so many different neighborhoods here and there's so much. Um, diversity here, just in terms of natural, like what you want to live. There's, there's folks that work for us that live closer to the Everglades, like, you know, in, in, you know, that kind of environment, there's folks that live in Fort Lauderdale, um, folks that live in all different suburbs of Miami. So you can kind of pick and choose. I think it's a little bit like LA actually, where there's so many different neighborhoods and so many different vibes that you can kind of find whatever, whatever suits you and whatever you like. Um, so I'm, I'm a big proponent of Miami. I, I, you know, I have plenty of people that visit, you know, every year on a normal year, uh, that, that helps me reaffirm that and say, okay, people from all these other cities are coming to visit. There's a reason, um, there's a reason people come here. Um, so yeah, that's my short spiel on Miami. Yeah. I love that. And yeah, I, I hear you on, I think it's a good analogy to make to LA in terms of the vibe of all the neighborhoods. And cause like 
that was definitely something I remember as a field organizer. It's like, you know, I, I had all these different parts of the city that I was, uh, you know, like in charge of, of running, you know, the field operations for. And I was just amazed by the diversity of kinds of people you could run into. It was just like, you know, just like retired Midwesterners and like, you know, yuppie gay couples and just, you know, Dominicans and just like, just like all kinds of people and all kinds of niches. And just like, yeah, it's incredible the diversity that you you have down there. And I think that is like you're saying, super underrated. You know, it's funny because you're talking just now about, you know, uh, working from home and my head flashed, you know, this image of, you know, a, a day game and all of a sudden it becomes a lot more feasible for people to go to a day game. And so, you know, so, you know, it, it would be, I feel like it would be, uh, you know, remiss of me to not ask, you know, like, what are the things you're forecasting for COVID or, or thinking about or excited about or, or interested in? And I, we talked about some of the interesting things about, you know, how you have to have this kind of binary outcome to plan for. And that's one thing. But, you know, what else, you know, what are some opportunities that you're seeing, you know, coming out of, you know, remote work? more distributed work, maybe people moving to Miami, maybe that's durable. Like what are, what are the opportunities that you're seeing? Yeah. So you hit on one of them. I mean, just people having, I think more flexibility. I think that's one thing that has come out of COVID is that while people were forced to work from home, people have realized that people can work at kind of all different hours. Get, as long as they're getting their work done, people can kind of have a little bit more flexibility in when they do their work and, and how they're doing their work. So I think that benefits us in the sense that, you know, well, as you mentioned, day games, More, most many people would say, oh, no, no, I have work during the day. I can't do that. But I think we've now proven that, sure, you can take two hours, three hours out of your day, go do something, whatever it is during the day, and then come back and make up that work at night or where, whenever you need to make it up. So I think that's one area of flexibility is just knowing, again, day games are, are typically, you know, we turn them into camp days, you know, when we when schools in uh, summer, when you have summer uh, day games, you say, okay, let's bring all the camps in, let's do that. But I think there's an opportunity to grow that and, and you know, bring bring folks that are that are working from home. Uh, again, we'll have to see, as you mentioned, we're currently, we're, we're optimistic and hoping that our opening day is April 1st. We're hoping that we can have everyone back and, you know, have a full house for April 1st uh, when, when our season starts. Um, but we have to plan for the worst as well. I mean, that's part of, as a lawyer, as part of my job, but also as someone who's kind of our COVID response team planning for that as well, saying, okay, what can we do to make people feel safe? Let's say some level of vaccines are distributed. Let's say there's some level of testing going on. Um, you know, what can we do to make fans feel safe? Um, how do we socially distance suites? How do we socially distance blocks of seating? How do we make people feel, hey, this is a, this is a safe environment. Uh, and I think, and I think ultimately there, there is a demand for that. I mean, we've seen, we do fan surveys and we, we talk to our fans a lot and we get the sense that, yeah, you know, people have been removed from sporting events for essentially a year. Um, and there is a little bit of fatigue. There is a little bit of COVID fatigue of, okay, you know, I'm ready to get back into, I'm ready to get back into the world. I'm ready to get back in society. Um, I'm ready to go to a sporting event, but I want to be safe. I have a family at home. I have whatever other concerns. I want it to be safe. And so that's what we're trying to do is really, really make it as safe as possible, saying we're taking every precaution we can. We're bringing in third parties to validate what we're doing. We want everyone to feel like this is a perfectly safe experience, just like, you know, going to the supermarket or going to the CVS or whatever it is where, you know, you, you've grown to maybe feel comfortable with those things. We want this to be an extension of that where you feel comfortable coming to the ballpark and saying, okay, like this is, this is going to be a safe, controlled experience um, and something I can take part in. Um, so the opportunity for us is really just um, providing an outlet for people who, who want to get out and, and are willing to go, go, go attend a sporting event, knowing that all the safety and precautions are, are in place. So uh, I know that we're, we, we need to wrap up now. And so maybe I'll, I'll pose a last question. I'm just, I, I think it's interesting because you were so uh, focused on the field that you're in. And so you had this, your eye on it for so long and you were so entrepreneurial with how you approached it. You know, we, we, somebody didn't cover that, you know, you, you launched a sports law journal, you know, in law school, things like that. So you were so immersed in it and, you know, now you've been at the helm of this company for, for 10 plus years. So, it, you know, through, you know, two managements. And so you've seen so much, and I'm really curious, you know, what surprised you the most, you know, in your experience at the Marlins? Yeah, um, I would say a couple of things. So 
Um, you know, the, the, the first thing that surprised me and, and, you know, is just how many different people it takes to put on a, a baseball game. You know, that's a very basic kind of thing. But um, for me to really get under the hood and realize how many different people it takes doing their, you know, unique little job, whatever it happens to be, in order to make a sporting event happen. I would have never guessed that from just being a fan or being outside of this world, just knowing how many different types of people from payroll administrators to electricians to whatever you, you can think of, a, a scoreboard animator, you know, all these little jobs that you just take for granted and don't really understand. Um, but now kind of being in a management role, actually having to oversee and set budgets and think about, you know, how many of these were people we're going to have, what are we going to do um, in the future? What do we do during a COVID season? What do we do in a full season? Um, those types of decisions that are made on staffing and, and understanding each role and what it does. I mean, that, that, to me is always a, a surprising element of how many people it takes. You know, you think of a boat, uh, uh, like a, a canoe or, or, you know, a, a, I'm blanking on the word, not a kayak, but a, uh, for rowing, when you got this many people rowing in the right direction, um, that's kind of, that's kind of the way I look at it. You need, for us, you need like 200 people rowing in the right direction and you have one person rowing the wrong direction, it could screw up the whole thing. So that's kind of the way I look at it. And I'm always fascinated by, by, um, by how many people it takes to actually do that. Um, the other thing that, that, you know, has really surprised me is just how sophisticated the business of sports has, has gotten. You know, I think when I look back, you know, 20 years ago, a lot of these sports teams were owned by family businesses. You know, this was the, they, they, the person had their own business or, or whatever it was. They bought the sports team and it was their toy. You know, they, they put their family members in as management and, you know, they just kind of ran it like that. It was like a, it was like having a yacht or another luxury toy. And it was just kind of there, you know, they, they owned it uh, for, for maybe vanity reasons to have a sports team uh, maybe for, uh, you know, benevolent reasons. They wanted to give back to the community. Um, but, but either way, they, it wasn't very sophisticated business. It was kind of just, oh, I own, I happen to own this team. That's another side business of mine. Um, you know, I enjoy going to the games and that's that. Um, and, and, and I think over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen with new ownership coming in, particularly you see it in the NBA, but also now in baseball, um, that the folks that come in are very sophisticated, very cutting edge. You get a lot of folks from private equity. You get a lot of folks from Wall Street, uh, professional services firms, consulting firms. You, you, This um, business, I think, has just taken such a transformation and, and the level of sophistication is just that much greater where, um, you know, I look at every decision we make, it goes through so many layers of vetting um, and, and just that level of sophistication, I think, is just new to the way sports teams are valued. I mean, you, you look at these valuations of teams. I mean, we sold for roughly $1.2 billion dollars. Like that, when you think about that, you say, okay, yes, that makes sense to have all these people kind of focus on the valuation and the revenue streams and the operating costs and everything else that go with it. But for the longest time, you know, you look at the values that folks paid when they bought these teams, like 20 years ago, they were paying 40 million, 100 million. So these things have exploded in value. And, and with that comes just the level of sophistication that, um, you know, I think is not this industry wasn't used to, and now we've all gotten used to it with newer ownership groups and newer management teams coming to place where people are very sophisticated and it's kind of um, raised the level for everybody in terms of how we operate and being strategic and, you know, how, just how we, how we make decisions. You know, I, I, after you said that, I can't resist asking one last question, you know, sure. so I guess take your pick of who you'll answer this for. So maybe it's for a Marlins fan Maybe it's for someone who loves baseball or maybe someone who doesn't really, you know, isn't that invested in sports, maybe a casual fan or whatever. What's something that you want them to take away about, you know, the Marlins or, or baseball, you know, like what's, what's something you want in part on, on someone in the sure. no, I Yeah, I think, I think it ties into what we talked about earlier. I mean, I think we, we are competing with your, you know, we're competing for your entertainment dollar. We're competing for your discretionary, um, income here. And we want to be known as a very affordable, uh, the most affordable sport in our view, um, you know, and, and a very entertaining product. So, you know, come spend two, three hours with us. You will be entertained for that time. We have plenty going on at the ballpark, whether you're a baseball fan, whether you're not, um, we view it as a social experience. Um, that's what we've kind of transitioned to. Like we know that we have people on a full spectrum of hardcore baseball fan who may sit in their seat and kind of keep score the old fashioned way. Um, this is someone who's just there to like, as a friend of a friend or something, tagging along for happy hour. So we want everyone to feel welcome. We want everyone to feel like, Hey, I can have a good time here for a couple hours, which is, you know, again, all we're asking is come for a couple hours, enjoy yourself. There's plenty 
plenty of things going on at the ballpark besides the baseball game. Obviously, again, that's the focus. But, um, you know, again, we want to cater to all folks and all across all across the spectrum of fans um, and then feel like they're getting entertained for their for their dollar, which, again, we feel is, you know, our ticket prices are extremely low. We've got a you know very cheap concessions menu. So, you know, we've done what we can to kind of make it as affordable as we can, because we know um, that's always been a complaint about um, these types of events. So we've done we've done that. And we just hope that people give us a chance to come out and hopefully they will be entertained. All right. That's a good pitch, because as somebody like myself, who's been to maybe three Cubs games and two SAS games. I mean, that, that hits for me. So now, now I might, if I'm in Miami, I might actually hit up a, a Marlins game. So that's good. Yes. Yes. Good to hear. <laughs> hey man, I'm glad we did this. I, I, I think it was super cool what you do and uh, I'm glad you shared it with me. And uh, I think it's going to be interesting to a lot of people. Happy to do it. And thanks for having me. And yeah, hopefully people find it interesting. Yeah, man.